0: Hello and welcome to this ninth episode of LAKO's podcast, Beyond the Score. On today's episode, we're very pleased to bring you our very own concertmaster, Margaret Bacher.
1: Hi, so nice to be here with all of you.
0: Great to have you here.
2: Thank you so much for joining us, Margaret. I'm sure all of our listeners know that Margaret is LAKO's concertmaster. She's a graduate of Curtis Institute of Music. She's been the Concert Master of LACO since 1998, and she's on violin faculty at USC Thornton School of Music and Colburn's Music Academy. Margaret, is there anything that you'd like to add?
1: Well, that pretty much sums up my professional life, (laughs) as well as some, you know, outside concerts and traveling for things other than LACO and teaching. Uh, Those are the
3: three main areas of my life, yes. We obviously all know that you have a really busy career as both a performer and an educator. And so how have you adjusted since you know the pandemic and having to be quarantined? Well, it's been
1: an adjustment. <laughs> I think you know looking back, now here we are in almost August and uh when I think back to the first second week of March, I was actually on the road. Uh we had finished up a Leko set and I Uh, It was spring break at USC and I was, I had a week of concerts uh, in, um, I was in Las Vegas and in Florida. And upon returning, it was kind of just beginning where I was panicked trying to get masks to to make that trip, Mm -hmm. feeling like I needed to have the the basic protective things for that week.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And, but it still wasn't really very real. in in any of our minds, I think. But once I arrived at LAX on the way home, and I went to uh, straight to teach, actually, at Colburn, and I was teaching all afternoon. I just arrived from Atlanta, and about seven o'clock, I got hungry, and I went downstairs to get some food, and I saw all the students in the lobby and the plaza just crying and embracing and I was like what's going on who died what's (laughs) happened Mm -hmm. and they said haven't you seen the email they've they've shut down the school and then suddenly in in you know that tiny moment it suddenly hit me so hard that oh my god Mm -hmm. thank god I'm home number one and number two what is life going to be like for these kids and these students who are trying desperately in the space of two days to plan all of their trips home, move out of the dorms. They had basically two or three days to get out of the dorms. So I think in the beginning stages, I was a little in denial that it was going to last very long. So it's been a process. And I'm now, I I, I think in the beginning stages as a teacher, uh, I've spoken with all my colleagues and realized that we kind of all went through the same process. Our instinct was to protect our students and to provide a platform for them to continue to be inspired and continue to be uh, productive. And so I kind of went into overdrive Mm -hmm. because all the concerts were canceled. I didn't have the pressing daily routine of practicing three, four hours a day, because I didn't have anything coming up in the next month that I knew of. So all my energies went into teaching and learning the technology that most of us in my generation don't have, sadly. And that took an incredible investment of time on meetings, setting up all of the platforms that I needed to be in touch with my students and be able to teach them. So over the next, I would say, six weeks until the end of the school year, I was just in overdrive. I think I sat at my desk in front of my computer. I don't know. I worked harder than I've ever worked in terms of my teaching because I was in constant touch with them. We spent a lot of extra time together uh, on class sessions every week having people perform, trying to figure out the technology, which I'm incredibly grateful to all my lovely students for helping me with that. Um, but it was, an, it was just kind of an overdrive, like as if I, this was my new reality and I was just going to keep going. And I didn't really allow myself to think about much else, uh, thinking it would come to an end quite soon. And, and as the weeks went into months and the months went into more months, then realities hit. And unlike most years of my life where I have the school year ends in beginning of May and Leco ends in May, and then I go off and do my summer season, which is festivals and traveling to different uh, places around the country to uh, perform and teach, that all started canceling. And then I realized I had nothing in front of me for the foreseeable future. So I just kept teaching. I did, and all my students uh, had festivals that were canceled, so they had nothing to do either. So we just, I just kept teaching. And it, it was really only about four weeks ago that I realized I really need a break because I just haven't stopped. And it's such a different energy sitting in front of the computer teaching as opposed to being in a room with someone. And so I uh, I told them all, I wish them all the very best for three and a half weeks and told them I love them and I'll love them even more in three and a half weeks when I haven't seen <laughs> them in three and a half weeks. And um, and so they're on their own now. I'm on vacation and the school will start up again kind of mid mid-August. But I definitely needed a break from this kind of Zoom mentality of teaching. It's been fun in terms of Lego because uh I planned the help plan the Summerfest series, which of course was is ongoing right now. And uh that that was very artistic for me in terms of helping envision what this series would be and how it would be done. On the, with the parameters of safety, limited rehearsal, all of those things that, that sort of fed into the programming ideas.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the, the first program? When, um, so after the, the whole planning process and when you came in for the first concert there in Summerfest, what was it like? the environment, how did you feel? I mean, the first, that must've been one of the first, if not the first time actually being in the same space again with some of your colleagues to, to perform. And so what was that?
1: It was the first time. And I was really emotional about going into zipper hall, you know, which is kind of like a second home for me. And I just, I guess I didn't really know what to expect. There was a there was a certain energy because I planned that program as not the first program, but the second program. And the first program was actually going to be Ken Monday uh, leading uh, the, our principal bassoon, leading a program which actually got derailed because he broke his wrist. Mm-hmm. So kind of at the very last moment, we had a choice either to delay the series and not start it when we wanted to start it, or we had to plug in this trio. And I was very fortunate in that Andrew Van Ooyen, who was supposed to be a guest uh, pianist on In Focus this past spring, which got canceled due to COVID, he was here in LA and available. And so that made sense to do something that we could put together quite quickly. Uh, Andrew and I, Schulman and I, of course, have played together uh, so much over the last, and I was concerned about you know, we have a two and a half hour rehearsal for a recording session, so it had to be something that we felt confident we could do musically uh, in a compelling way, and yet with very limited rehearsal. So it was a, emotional at, in the beginning, but honestly, the the reality of playing with social distancing and with masks sort of changed the for me personally, changed the dynamic of that day because it was uncomfortable, quite frankly. Uh, you know, we, we rely so much as chamber musicians on facial expressions um, that kind of guide each other towards our the way we want to shape a phrase or the way we want to cut off a note. And really, when you're thinking about only having your eyes available, it really does, it, it's a completely different experience playing to, and also the distances, uh, where you're used to very, you know, being able to really hear well, put your sound, uh, together with someone's that is also definitely, um, a a difficult situation with, with that physical separation. So it was challenging. I mean, at the end of the day, I think I felt relieved because I think at that point in this COVID process, I finally felt like, okay, musicians are going to be able to make music again, and that was heartening. Um, I don't know when we're going to be able to make it in the way in our old reality, in the way we used to make music, but it is a definitely a great opportunity for our musicians to be able to have that personal contact and be able to make music together. I think it's it's been a, a real blessing. for for most of our musicians.
2: For our listeners who may not be musicians themselves, imagine trying to speak to somebody, like having a conversation with somebody without actually seeing their face. You can't really gauge someone's expression, so you might not really understand fully what they're saying. So to play in person and see each other is definitely necessary to make great chamber music.
1: I would definitely agree. You know, the physicality of music making is is just hugely important in the process of being uh closely connected musically and on from an ensemble standpoint so it it it's going to be a really interesting journey these next this next season and it I've been watching all of my colleagues around the country and and in Europe and how how they're able to do it what's successful, what's not successful. We don't yet have all of the guidelines because they're constantly changing here. We don't know what the beginning of our season this year will be like in terms of the physical space and what, how many, you know, we know limited number of musicians are going to be able to play on the stage at one time. But the experience of doing that with
3: and without a conductor it is going to be really, uh, a journey for all of us. And we also don't even have an audience in these broadcasts. And so would you say that it affects you differently mentally, um, in the way that you're in the moment when you're performing, because it's a recording versus when it's a live performance?
1: That's a really good question. I, I've always felt as a performer that, um, you know, in a performance, every performance almost now is is captured on on audio, and I never think about it. Uh, you know, when I'm in a concert, you don't think about the microphone. You're only thinking about being in the moment of the music and you're playing to an audience. I've I've done a lot of recording in my lifetime for CDs and uh, recordings, but. That it's like left brain, right brain for me. I kind of feel I approach how I play for a recording slightly different than I do for a live, a live performance. Uh, a year ago, we did a, a Laco like put out a CD of Pierre Jalbert's Violin Concerto. And um, it was a live performance with a very uh, small, I think a 15 minute patch session or 15, 20 minute patch session. So that was a combination of right brain, left brain, where I had to think in a live performance, yeah, I need to be really accurate because last night wasn't so good and tonight needs to be really great. (laughs) And so there was that added pressure, but this last time for, for Summerfest going into this empty hall was a really different sensation. And I think the missing, the connection with the audience for me, it was really sad. I knew that we were doing a broadcast for our patrons, our subscribers, uh, and for others uh, new to Laco. But I remember at the end of the first movement of the Mendelssohn D minor piano trio, we finished the first take, uh, and uh, we recorded each movement twice because they needed to be complete movements. We weren't We weren't editing within the performances. And we finished that last chord, and I... And I finished, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's silent! It's <laughs> so weird." Like I, I felt the energy on the stage, but then the sound died, and there was nothing. And you feel so sad <laughs> that <laughs> where where are these people that should be listening to this? So, yeah, I think it's a it's a. I think some of my colleagues have, I've watched and heard, their performances online. And they're doing a fantastic job. We all are trying our best to make it as, as realistic as possible uh, in terms of a performance atmosphere. But when you sit in an empty hall and don't hear any feedback or that energy that you feed off as a performer, it is, it is different and difficult.
3: While we're on the topic of the first Summerfest concert that we had a couple weeks ago, you and pianist Andrew Von Oyen, who was our guest, performed um, The Deserted Garden by Florence Price. And so recently she's she's come up because she's a female African-American composer who's long been left out of the standard repertoire in classical music. How did you come across her piece and why did you choose that particular piece to play in the concert?
1: Um, we
3: decided
1: early on with Summerfest uh, as Black Lives Matter was Really coming to the forefront of everyone's mind, and we were all so moved and passionate about it as an organization, as me personally, I think all of us. Um, so we decided to continue our institutional commitment to composers of color, uh, which we have, you know, Derek Spiva, who has been a composer in residence for us. Uh, we've performed uh, music, several pieces of his, but it was clearly not enough. I mean, we needed to do something to show our commitment to this movement. And I started doing, I think as all my colleagues started doing a lot of research uh, to find, I'd also, I heard of Florence Price and actually heard a work of hers not too long ago. She wrote uh, several short pieces for violin and piano, and uh, and I happened to be on Facebook one night in the middle of the night, and a former uh, student had posted this piece, "Deserted Garden," uh, online. And I listened to it, and I was so moved. I thought oh, it was so beautiful. So I looked for the music and called Serge, and we researched it. But it was her music is very difficult to to get. And so I contacted uh, my friend, and she sent it to me. I just thought it was such a beautiful piece and a nice way to begin the series. Uh, This so far, we've had, like, as I said, two pieces by Florence Price. Uh, Josh Rance arranged a piece for uh, string quartet and clarinet himself uh, because he liked that piece and had heard uh, his friend, Anthony McGill perform it recently and, and liked that. And then later on, we're going to have a piece uh, by Derek Spiva, Um, which Giovanna, uh, our our cellist, is going to play. And then uh, on the last performance, last concert, David Grossman will be doing something in tribute to Black Lives Matter. So I think over the course of five concerts, we've at least um, been able to feel that we have projected to our audiences the importance of this very sad uh, reality.
2: For our audience who's really familiar with our programming, um, we have our In Focus series, which you are the curator of, and you are the curator of the Summer Festival as well. What goes into the role of curator for these programs?
1: Um, that's a really good question. I guess, you know, early on, many, many years ago, uh, when Jeff Kahane was uh, music director and... They came to us and said, you know, we wanted to start a chamber music, a real chamber music series in association with LACO. And I've always been uh, interested in connections between music and other artistic disciplines or non-artistic disciplines. And so we started a series called West Side Connections. And that was, uh, I invited guests uh, from all walks of life, whether poets, uh brain surgeons, uh, chefs, um, architects, to come and speak about their own life and then let the sort of lines of connection between what they are experts in and design programs that I felt related to that subject. So that was the being the curator of West Side Connections, was putting it three concerts series each year together that sort of design that made a topic come alive in the in in the music world uh, in terms through repertoire and so that that was mainly my job is conceiving the idea for the season and then researching and finding great guest speakers and then putting together the programs and occasionally also play after Westside Connections kind of ran its course we switched gears and went to uh, a a different format and we called it In Focus and each year we had a kind of focus of repertoire uh, so that one piece or the general focus of the series would be based on that but not the the, the one thing we didn't want to do with In Focus is put ourselves in a box. It was just a kind of way of of defining that season whether it be Beethoven this past season and Uh, was supposed to be next season um, because of the 250th anniversary or whether it was Schumann or Mozart Uh, we also had other works on the program that I thought just made good programs so it's really being a curator is is about conceiving an idea and then executing it with programs and eventually casting it for the musicians to play.
2: Uh, was there anything that you wanted to say about uh, any of the other uh, repertoire for the summer series
1: well when when putting together this series it was it is a summer series and Laco's never had a summer series so i wanted to put together programs that had a certain summery element generally when we think of summer we think of of people think of the hollywood bowl some pop's concerts uh, some more serious programs that it not have one Context that it had a lot of different elements to it to keep a lot of variety in the programming. So, uh, and of course, we have extraordinary musicians in our orchestra that are have also uh, you know in affinities for certain type of repertoire. I first contacted uh, Ken Monday, our bassoonist, our principal bassoonist, because I he's been doing for years these programs with four bassoons uh, as kind of little chamber music programs. And I've heard that they're wonderful. I had never actually been to one, but I had heard that they were really fun. So I called him up and I said, what do you think about doing that? But since we only have two bassoons in our orchestra, how could we make that work? And he said, oh, all the repertoire could be done with two cellos and two bassoons. So that was where we started. And I thought that would be a really fun program. Uh, He's put together... Uh, works you know, serious some Mozart, some um, uh, uh, baroque music, but also a Hollywood tribute uh, where there's going to be you know George Gershwin's "Summertime" from Porgy and Bess, uh, the theme song from Laura, uh, and um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie, Mar- the March of the Marionettes. Uh, so I think that that this kind of it's not poppy but it's it's a eclectic and i thought that would be a really fun way to show that week's program um another uh wade Colbreth, who's one of our uh fabulous musicians he uh is going he he's going to be doing a broadcast uh, in i think next week or the week after and he found a piece he's just Marimba does not have a lot of chamber music. <laughs> so he had to go digging a little bit. But he found a duet for cello and marimba by um, Osvaldo Goliath, which is absolutely stunningly beautiful, called Mariel. So he's going to be doing that. And he also is going to be playing sabah. But with that, I wanted to also present a string quartet, and, which is in Lako's DNA. So they're, they're doing a Haydn uh, string quartet with nicknamed The Bird. Uh, which I thought made a nice program. And then um, at the end of the season, uh, we'll be uh, featuring David Grossman, our new principal bass. Uh, And I've always loved the Rossini sonatas because it's just, there doesn't get better than that in terms of Italian music. (laughs) It's so operatic and they're so fun to play. Um, But, you know, again, as curator, you have to, be concerned about a two and a half, three-hour rehearsal for a, for a, a recorded broadcast. So we're fortunate. I knew that the only way that we could make that those Rossini quartets, two of them, work in a broadcast would be to have the it's for two violins, cello, and bass. And I knew the only way to do that would be to have the violinists be able to rehearse. And we have one married couple in our violin section. So I figured Carrie and Joel could not have to socially distance and actually rehearse their their parts to the Rossini, which are very demanding and difficult. And they would be able to work all that out ahead of time and then just come in as a group of four and put that together. So that's kind of how that came to be is just a combination of thinking about
3: variety and textures and orchestration. So we would love to go back to some of us at the end of this, but Kind of go into your career as a professional musician and also your career at Leco. Do you remember when you won the concert master position twenty years ago, and what that was like? I do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I I remember it pretty well. I I had never been in an orchestra. I spent once I uh, graduated from school. I was uh, I had managers and chamber music groups, and basically just toured and played concerts uh, by myself and also with uh, my string quartet at the time, which was based in Europe. So when I first moved to Los Angeles 35 years ago, I was here, but I was just kind of stopping by. <laughs> to I was traveling a lot, I would say at least 50, if not 60 or 70% of the time, so when I came home, it was really just to practice and be with my husband and decompress. But I used to go to concerts and I remember going to Laco uh, concerts at least once a year um, and loving the orchestra. I didn't know a lot of musicians in town at that time. So that was kind of my introduction to Los Angeles musical circles and uh Fast forward several years, I uh, I had a child, I had a son, and then continued my life of concertizing and traveling and taking him with me. And it, it, as he got older and I got pregnant for the second time, um, it, be, it the the reality was it was getting harder and harder for me to balance my life as a as a wife, a mother and a musician when I was gone and away so much of the time. And at about that time, the orchestra, the chamber orchestra was looking for a concertmaster. And unfortunately, the first time that they had auditions, I was on tour in Europe and I, could, I couldn't take the audition. But fortunately for me, they didn't hire anyone. So when they were looking to have the next audition, I made certain that I, I decided that would be something that would give me some artistic satisfaction here in Los Angeles where I could be happy doing projects. I had recently met Jeffrey Kahane. Uh, of course I knew of him, uh, for many, many years, our paths had crossed, but I had never worked with him and we played together at a festival and I just was so impressed and blown away by his artistry as a pianist. And, um, And I thought, yeah, I could definitely, that would be something that would be very gratifying for me. So I set upon learning the orchestral (laughs) excerpts, which I had never done. So I took my first audition at the age of 39 uh, while pregnant with my daughter. And uh, I remember it well because I was so sick. I had such morning sickness. And the audition was in August. And it was at Cal State uh Cal CSUN uh Cal State Northridge. And you know, for those of you that live in the San Fernando Valley, you know what it's like in August. It's about 110 degrees and it was hot and it was miserable and I was very pregnant and I was very sick. So
3: I could hardly forget that audition. That sounds really incredible and I don't think I've ever heard a story like yours because oftentimes concertmasters come from other orchestras, and you just just started at the top. So that's amazing. Well, I, I, I think that I got very lucky,
1: but the fact is I don't think I could have done that with a major symphony orchestra, a large ensemble, because those skills at the age of 39, you can do it. Certainly you can, you can do that. But the step from a string quartet to a chamber orchestra is very closely connected. the the repertoire even is you're talking about, we don't play Mahler symphonies. There's no Mahler violin concertos. We don't play Bruckner. We don't play a lot of the big orchestral pieces. So it felt like a very natural transition. And I think uh, the size of our orchestra and the kind of, the feeling amongst our musicians is very much of a chamber music experience. And, it's a very collaborative experience. So it felt very natural to me. It was really a matter of learning the repertoire, which, you know, I was playing, uh, you know, Mozart symphonies for the first time. Although I had played every violin concerto and most of his string quartets and piano quartets trios, I had never played a lot of his symphonies and, or his Beethoven, or Beethoven symphonies. Um, So I think it was just a matter of learning the repertoire, but the but the feeling of stepping into a concertmaster chair was very much comfortable. Was very comfortable for me.
2: Uh, so you mentioned that you, you hadn't played in an orchestra before. Did you not play in orchestras when you were um, in college?
1: Oh yeah, I did. I had a lot of or- I had, had a lot of orchestral experience as a student. Um, I went to Interlochen, which uh, to the Arts Academy in Michigan, which is very heavy uh, in terms of their orchestral emphasis. So I had been concertmaster of the orchestra. Uh, at the academy, also during the camp, and then I went uh, to Curtis uh, as a high school student, and so I spent six or seven years at Curtis, and we had a phenomenal orchestra program there where every Saturday, and I think that's where I learned, you know, most of us back then, most of my friends, uh, you know, we never believed any of us would be in orchestras. We all thought we were going to be Yasha Heifetz. You know, that's just, ha- that's how you are when you're a student, <laughs> and and a lot of my colleagues and friends had already quite successful careers uh, as soloists and chamber musicians, but orchestra appealed to me then. I took it probably more seriously than some of my friends. I, I was, I got a lot of concertmaster opportunities while I was at Curtis playing with some of the greatest, Chela Riccardo Mutti, Claudio Bato, Uh Victor Burgos, I mean, I, I had fantastic mentors in terms of who stood up in front of our orchestra, so that was a phenomenal experience, and and probably, you know, I think life is, it's a little, it's like serendipity. You kind of take little things of your past, and then you, you, you say, oh, yeah, I had that experience, so that made me feel slightly more comfortable in taking an orchestra audition at 40, Um and also, the chamber orchestra was something that I felt strongly was the perfect fit for me because I did not have to um, be a uh, solely an orchestral player because I, we're not a full-time orchestra. So, in that respect, um, it was it was the perfect fit for me. But those orchestral years at Curtis were some of my great memories of playing, you know, that repertoire. I'll never forget some of some of those experiences.
0: You mentioned uh, Jeffrey, and he was the relatively new music director at the time when uh, you were hired as concertmaster. And since then, I mean, you've played chamber with music with him countless times, and he's recorded several of, uh, he's conducted several of the albums that you've recorded and so on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that friendship and that relationship as a colleague? I mean, he also teaches at USC, where where you both teach. And so tell us a little bit more about working with Jeffrey.
1: Well, as I said, I, I didn't know him very well when I, when I got the job, um, I knew him very little, but immediately connected to him as a, as a musician and a mentor in many respects. He, you know, as a as a violinist, to have a music director who is one of the world's really foremost pianists, you kind of hit the jackpot <laughs> in a way because there is our orchestra has these different series that incorporate chamber music and opportunities, musicals, and opportunities to for individual members to play together, as well as Jeffrey played a lot with a lot of our musicians because he was a pianist, and um, we we quickly connected musically as musicians. And, you know, it was one of the great joys of my life to be able to do the Beethoven cycle at Zipper Hall with him, the Brahms cycle with him, um, countless uh, performances of chamber music. So that was a great gift along with having him as our music director. Um, you know, I think he, he just brings a unique set of, of skills to uh, and and attributes to anything that he performs. It's always at the highest artistic level. His his sense of collaboration and collegial support for everyone on the stage. I think is just a beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, and I. I mean there've been so many projects with the Chamber Orchestra with Jeff that we've done, you know, all the Beethoven piano concertos, and I'll never forget, of course, all of the Mozart piano concertos over about seventeen months. That was just an extraordinary experience to sit there and and I think as a as a musician and a kind of leader, when he can there's very few that can do that. There's Dana Bernboim, there's you know Marie Pariah, there's different players that do that. But Jeff has a way of, you know, how he, he's sitting facing the orchestra, the lid is off the piano. The, the, the intimacy of that creates a certain magic that probably doesn't happen very often on the stage. And, and I think our orchestra's strength, if there was one strength I could define, is the ability to adapt Um, in that genre of music, Beethoven, the classic Schubert, Mozart, Beethoven. Um, And his musical leadership in that created this magic on the stage for all of us. I remember looking across the stage at some of my colleagues uh, at different moments in the Beethoven cycle and the Mozart cycle and seeing musicians on the stage with tears running down their faces because it was just one of those rare musical moments that we as musicians hope to have many of, and some of us don't have that many, but, uh, he, he, he definitely gave us, uh, a gift with, with those cycles that he did. And then just as a, as a conductor and leader, of course, it was just wonderful to his programming was beautiful. I thought his sense of programming, Um, and, know, it's very rare that you have a music director for 20 years also. And so it was a great way to begin my orchestral, my orchestral career with a musician like that. And now once Jeff retired, uh, you know, and the search was on for our next music director, and I feel very blessed to be, still be here uh, with our new music director, Jaime Martin, who is just such a also beautiful musician and warm human being. Uh, and his sense of programming is also incredibly exciting. Uh, I can't wait for us to get back. <laughs> it's hard to believe what he's had to go through in those first few years of, first year of being our music director. It's unfortunate to say the least that COVID has interrupted what was such a vibrant and energetic beginning to his years with Laco. Uh, We'll get back on track soon, we all pray and hope. Um, Yeah, so I've been very lucky, and that will probably be, you know, my, I'm guessing, uh, my two music directors (laughs) in my
3: orchestral life, and I couldn't have gotten more lucky. So you mentioned that you went to Curtis, and you studied with the great Ivan Galamian and David Saron, do any of their teachings or even, you know, before your conservatory studies, have any of your mentors had an influence on your teaching philosophy or the way that you teach your young students now? Without question.
1: I think uh, I, I talk a lot. I use the word blessed a lot in my life, and I do feel blessed because I have been mentored by some of the great teachers, the great artists uh, in the world that have I've been fortunate enough to be able to study with and make music with. And certainly Galamian was my major teacher. Uh, I went to him when I was 14. Uh, was I 14? 15. I think 15. And he plucked me out of Interlochen and said, you're coming to Curtis. And in 10 days later, I was enrolled at Curtis. And, uh, I actually never auditioned at Curtis back in those days. It was kind of, uh, I always laugh and tell my students, cause now getting into Curtis is like winning the lottery. Uh, it's so difficult. I couldn't get in today, but <laughs> I, I came in the back door, but I walked out the front is <laughs> how I describe it. Uh, and, you know, when I think back to, to my friends, it's kind of like a who's who of musical uh, heritage. I was really lucky to be at Curtis at that time with so many extraordinary musicians. But studying with Glami, and I studied with him for seven years and also with David Saron, who is still a friend to this day. We still communicate and see each other on occasion. Um, it was tremendous training, and the violin part of my life, which was taken care of by—I was a true Galamian student. I—I I really he—he he took me as a kind of project because I was, even though I had had success in my early uh, teens uh, in competitions and playing. I was kind of a mess. I I didn't really have a clear technical understanding of the instrument. And when I went to Glamian, he just basically said, you're a project, I take a project every 10 years, you're it. So you'll study five hours a day, you'll practice five hours a day, and I'll give you lessons three times a week. And so I got very fortunate in my training with him. And he kind of took me apart and put me back together. So I used that. Those years of studying with him, I use that with my own students uh, in terms of the discipline, the consistency, the philosophy of what he was trying to teach me. But at the same time at Curtis, it was also an incredibly fertile musical, uh, a, a, a sort of musical moment in time with some of the great, great artists. You're talking about Sasha Schneider and Felix Gallimere and the Guarneri String Quartet and you know at at Cirque and on and on and on and on, where we were just it's such a small school, and so you know we drank tea together on Wednesday afternoons or whatever it was and i heard I heard them play all the time, and I had lessons with them besides my violin lessons, so that was also a humongous influence on my teaching philosophy because there there has to be a way you know to. To teach kids properly and get them to play at a te- very high technical level, but also to be able to inspire them musically to, do, to reach outside of themselves and outside of their box and be able to really challenge them to do that. And I feel like my training kind of gave me the ability to hopefully inspire them in that way as well. And I'm also very fortunate to have some extremely talented students.
2: We were wondering who some of your favorite violinists to listen to are. And if you could also speak to, uh, you played with Hilary Hahn or recorded the Block Double with Hilary Hahn a very long time ago and last, or two years ago, uh, you also played with her the Block Double again. If you could speak a little bit about that, that experience and what it was like both times.
1: Uh, well, Hilary is a, is a very, very special violent talent, as you all know. She is extraordinary. Um, I think I first met her when she was probably, I want to say 18, 17, something like that, that we recorded for the first time. And we did a small tour together to prepare for that recording, uh, that we did for, um, uh, I believe it was Deutsche Gramophone, uh, where we recorded the Bach double. She recorded the two violin concertos, and Alan Vogel and Hillary recorded the Opal violin concerto. And she's just an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary violinist. You just stand in awe of her violin talent. It's just as a teacher, I just whoa, you know, how did you, how does she play the way she plays? When you see it up close, it's quite, quite fascinating. But to have watched her develop over those twenty or 18 years was also lovely how she, how much she grew as a musician and i just i have to say the last time we played together the bach double for leco um i just had a smile on my face because i'm certainly old enough to be her mother and uh i i just was so happy to see what a lovely musician she had become in terms of her Uh, collaborative spirit in terms of her sort of intuitive uh, trusting of her intuitive musical ideas. And uh, it was just a real joy. So she's very special. Uh, As far as my my violin, well, I grew up really, my my heroes were uh, Nathan Milstein, David Oystrock, of course, Heifetz, uh, Francis Scotti, Seghezi, it's kind of the old world. They they were who I listened to. Uh, I didn't really listen to contemporary uh, contemporaries of mine very much, other than maybe Itzhak Perlman and uh, Pinky Zuckerman, and because uh, just because by nature the fact that they were recording so much. But um, in terms of today, uh, I have several violinists that I really really admire. Uh, I would say. Top of the list, uh, Christian Tetzloff, uh, who I just in the middle of the night last night was listening to give a masterclass on the Bach Chaconne, and I I just, it was just so joyful <laughs> to listen to him talk about music. Um, and it was a great, uh, great pleasure to have, welcome him last uh, year to play the Beethoven Concerto with us. Um, uh, Augustine hadelish who has been with LACO several times. I just admire him so much as a, as a musician. Uh, some of the newer ones, uh, uh, Stefan Jack, Jacku, uh, he's a wonderful player. Angelo Joux, uh, who I think is an extraordinary, uh, musician. There are so many, I I feel like, oh, and of course, Janine Jensen and, um, uh, Julia Fisher are
3: two of my favorite women violinists. Uh, there's a lot of really great ones today. To end our podcast, if you're interested in watching Summerfest, it happens every other Saturday, now until September 5th, and our next one is uh, on Saturday, August 8th at 5pm Pacific, and you can watch it live on YouTube and Facebook um, if you just search LA Chamber Orchestra. And for more information about programs and artists for the rest of our season or summer season, you can visit laco.org slash summerfest and if you can't make it all of our concerts are always available on demand right after the broadcast on our YouTube channel and also on our website
2: also check out our gift shop it's laco.org slash shop right now we are selling beach towels, t-shirts and a few other things so check it out
0: Margaret thank you again for taking the time to, to chat with us this afternoon and share so much about your experience at laco and and all the various aspects of your career. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your vacation and get some really good rest in so that you feel recharged for for the beginning of the academic year and the the concert season.
1: It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk and get to know you and and sort of remember my past.
3: (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) This has been Beyond the Score and we hope you join us again next time.